Hello, and welcome to The Director's Cut, a new podcast brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Each week, we will bring you a new interview with one of Hollywood's top directors discussing their latest film released this season. Each interview is conducted by a fellow director, which allows for honest and revealing discussions about the trials, tribulations, and bittersweet victories that come from leading a crew towards a singular creative vision for a film. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page, where you can also find our first episode with Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese discussing Mr. Spielberg's newest film, Bridge of Spies. For our special bonus episode to celebrate the launch of the new podcast, we will hear from two directors who share a deep friendship, a cultural heritage, and a history of viewing each other's troublesome rough cuts. We are speaking of Mexican directors Guillermo del Toro and Alejandro González Iñárritu. Mr. del Toro's films are vividly imagined tales that incite fear and wonder in audiences. From the dark fairy tale Pan's Labyrinth to the evil monsters battling giant earth-saving robots hit Pacific Rim, his pictures are filled with stunning visuals and unique designs. Del Toro's newest film is Crimson Peak, which he describes as a callback to gothic romances, but is of course touched by his signature dark twists and lurid imagery. In the film, a young wife joins her new husband and his troubled sister in their ancient family mansion, where countless secrets lie hidden beneath its foundation. Interviewing Mr. Del Toro about the new film is his longtime friend Alejandro Iñárritu. Fresh off his stunning accomplishment with last year's Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, which won him the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Films. Oh, and Best Director at the Academy Awards. Mr. Iñárritu has his own new film coming out soon called The Revenant and will be the focus of an upcoming episode of The Director's Cut, where Mr. Iñárritu moves from the interviewer chair to the hot seat saved for our subjects. But for this week, Mr. Iñárritu turns the spotlight on his mentor Guillermo del Toro for a discussion about the making of Crimson Peak. Enjoy! I couldn't be more happy uh, to be here tonight. It's a privilege for me to be with a, a, a dear friend of mine who uh, uh, changed the landscape of Mexican cinema a long, long time ago by approaching a film that opened the eye for all of us, a generation that were buried under bad, bad, bad films and no hope. And when Guillermo came to the landscape in Mexico doing his first film, Cronos, it, it really opened the eyes for every filmmaker. <laughs> And, you know, I met him because uh, when I was struggling uh, editing Amores Perro seven months inside, suddenly, you know, I heard that he generally wanted to help me. And I said, okay. So he was talking to me by the phone saying, you should do that and that because he saw it by a tape of a common friend, but I didn't meet him at that time. So then I said, if you want to fix it, come. Next day I opened the door and Guillermo is there with his eyes of a boy. And then, honestly, he really, really helped me to shape Amores Perros as it was. So I owe him always that incredible, generally, with no interest of, of, to help a colleague. So this is a true colleague that I, I met through, 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 through the passion that we share. And, um, and, and something that has surprised me all my, my life is how, and I don't know how he do that, that uh, he, he's um, always going back and forth from very uh, intimate, personal films uh, uh, from Pan's Labyrinth or uh, Devil's Backbone or Kronos and then jump from these giant productions managing, you know, from Hellboy or to Pacific Rim 
and films that are in a huge scale. And he's always going through that uh, stretch all the time, challenging himself and going back and forth from this. And, and what I found fascinating about this uh, new film of Guillermo is precisely, and that's my first question for you, Guillermo, like I personally feel that this film, in a way, um, after all the film that you have done, in a way, combined that, um, uh, that big scale, ambitious film with a very intimate, personal kind of uh, a story. And um, so I just want to ask you how, how this came, how this start, how this film come. Well, uh, you know, I, I, after Mimic, uh, I decided, Mimic was such a bad experience after Kronos that I decided that I would do the more adolescent movies in English and the more weird and adult movies in Spanish. And uh, because I, I, you know, believe it or not, I wanted to make a great giant insect movie on Mimic with uh, themes about ecology and family and this and that. And what ended up there was not that at all. And and it was so frustrating. I said, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to use big tools, learn to use big tools without Mimic or Hellboy. I couldn't have done Pan's Labyrinth without the tools I learned on that, um, or Blade and so forth. And, and, but it was very clear. And then after, after Pan's Labyrinth, uh, eight years ago, I decided I was going to risk it and do an adult movie in English. And, uh, and, you know, I decided to do a genre that, uh, has not been produced, uh, in, in the scale and the way I wanted to see it in 40 years, which is gothic romance. You know, and, and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a proper gothic romance with all the kinkiness and the weirdness and the, you know, I, I, of course it was not a very easy movie to pitch, you know, uh, when when you say female centric, uh, R-rated, violent, uh, tale of incest, you know, on a genre that nobody has done in 40 years, the studios were like falling all over themselves. <laughs> To make it, but I, I think that's part of the beauty. I mean, we wrote it for ourselves. Uh, we wrote it on spec, you know, we wrote it for, for the pleasure of writing it and honoring, uh, the books I read as a, as a very strange child, you know. I, one of the, the first movie I saw at age four was Wuthering Heights with Laurence Olivier. And then, uh, amongst the first books I read were two books that would prove vital to me, Frankenstein and Jane Eyre. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I remember the thing that I found dislocated a little bit is that, um, gothic romance is such a feminine, uh, strong feminine, uh, genre. And I felt that it, it had diluted over the years to either an actor with, a with a candlelight, no set and a lot of cobwebs. And when it became B movie, but when it was A movie, it was, uh, Dragon Week with Vincent Price or, uh, Rebecca, uh, the Hitchcock Rebecca or Jane Eyre, the, the Robert Stevenson's Jane Eyre. And, and I wanted to recuperate that sort of sense of splendor and recuperate how strong and kinky the, the genre could be. So uh, we wrote this. I, I really love the fact that the women's are really here, the, the real power of it. And, uh, and, uh, and at the same time, as you were saying, I agree that the, the gothic is, uh, this story is in a way in, in telling, but it's pervert, super perverse in that <laughs> sense, perverse. but in a way very mysterious and ghostly. 
And obviously the use of the architecture, the medieval mm-hmm. Gothic architecture, which is so intricate in the in the in the Gothic mm-hmm. fiction. Yes. How 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 you came, I will say visually, uh, to all the design. How how you how you where you start from creating the world of this film. I mean, obviously the period, but then this house in the middle of nowhere with all those holes and the walls and all those very mysterious things that are for me always were telling me something there. Yeah. What, what, how you came from the universe around this, this well gothic. you know the uh, the gothic romance the first gothic novel is uh, 1780 something with uh, Horace Walpole writes Castle of Otranto you know and it's the first time i think that any art movement uh, embraces romanticism in such a dark way is the marriage of love and death and it is anchored on a building to start with, you know, Castle of Otranto uh, links something that will remain a, a staple in Gothic, which is a building has to be part of a narrative. And uh, Poe uses it, for example, in the fall of the House of Usher, uh, uses it as an extension of the decay of his characters. So it, it has many things that are have commonalities with the fairy tale. You know, the the the, the sort of princess that falls in love with a dark uh, stranger uh, follows him to a castle of sorts where there is a secret uh, there is in fact a, a tale by Charles Perrault called Bluebeard's Wives that is very much Crimson Peak in many ways and and I, I started by thinking okay uh, I have to imbue it with that sense of fairy tale magic I have to make it opulent but I want to not make eye candy but eye protein so I want to make something nutritious on the on the visuals. So what we do is I do an eight to ten page biography for every actor, for every character, and then I share these biographies with wardrobe, uh, set design, and my cinematographer. And we sit down and we say, okay, we want it to be beautiful, but what does that beautiful mean? How are we helping the narrative? And we create. Uh, the first part of the movie is in this golden amber uh, age of discovery in America, the future. You know, Henry James said, defining Gothic romance before deconstructing it, Return of the Screw, he said, the Gothic romance is the clash between the future and the past. And the ghosts represent the past that frees us and doesn't allow us to move. And I thought, I'm going to make uh, America this sort of Jamesian contrast with the European world and is going to be golden. It's an age of promise. Uh, Buffalo, New York in 1901 is the most electrified city in the world. Uh, they have uh, steam engines, uh, typewriting machines. Um, it's, it's completely modern. And this girl uh, comes from there and goes to a completely cyan and blue cool world, which is uh, Allerdale Hall. And then we dosified not having read anywhere except the clay, the ghosts, and Lucille, which are and the joined. blood, and the blood, of course, yes, the blood, always the blood. But 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 then then you start layering it with everybody, and you say, okay, their clothing. Let's make their clothing ten years older than anybody else's. Let's make Lucille's dress, the red dress, have a spinal form. In the back, like the ghosts are going to have. Let's uh, show shoulder shapes that are butterfly shaped on on Edith, and then make Lucille like a cocoon, uh, 
until she reveals herself and then her uh, her robe opens like the wings of a moth um the the house the the cushion house you do you sort of codify it so it has the most modern you know william morris esque wallpaper you see the wealth straight lines you know you you can see it's a nouveau riche house you know with all the luxury allerdale hall is the opposite it's a house that has a foundation that is medieval and romantic at the bottom. And then you have this opulent, um, neo-Gothic, Gothic revival architecture. And it's such an act of, uh, pride and, and, um, you know, they, they were so happy with their wealth that they create this four-story high foyer that they never thought they needed to repair one day. So a hall is there. I wanted to sort of do the anti-Danton anti Abbey, which Danton Abbey is for me is, is, is class porn, you know? Is, oh, if this, if this rich aristocrats governed us, things would be so great. No, they are ass. Most of those guys are ass, and they would be ass because that, that, they, there's an entitlement and these guys, you know, never thought, oh, we're going to need to put, uh, scaffolding and go and repair this. We will always be rich. And, and I wanted them to be sort of s s sucking the blood out of the earth. And all these things, you know, I tried to tell little by little the machine. The, you see the model machine that he makes is so beautiful. And the big machine is all rusty and horrible like a dinosaur. You know, so everything visually uh, has um, cues. The, the shape of the corridor is the shape of a human being with triplicated the the wood so that it creates an effect that is it looks like it's out of focus but it isn't we have we establish a, a visual theme of moths versus butterflies uh, and we establish it on the on the furniture on the floor and everywhere we create the furniture in two sizes 30 percent bigger when she's weak 30 percent smaller when she's stronger the the bed the bed clothes change size her cup you don't notice that but she's at one point she's she has a coffee cup the size of a cereal bowl you know with a giant spoon and she looks smaller you know i mean these are things that you layer but we spend 7 months layering patterns colors and classifying it so it could be like a living painting yeah, I, 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 I'm now, you know, th that you are explaining all this, it makes sense because something that really took my attention was that the universe is so exquisite and so complex. And as you said, it's a character, it's, it's part, it's an extension of what the story is about, the decay of all that, which is particularly from the Gothic mm -hmm. fiction, which again, as you said, hasn't been explored and it's so elegant and, and, and restrain and something that I except when we go crazy. I agree. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. But once once I remember we were doing something together and, and Guillermo said, if I arrive to a set and there's no a monster, I'm unhappy. <laughs> yes. Uh, true. I, said, I have never seen a monster in the set, only me in the mirror. But <laughs> yes. but uh, but anyway, I think the in these guys you don't have a monster. Obviously the monster sometimes is the human souls and and, yeah. and that's that's what you would maybe try Well to there, there's a lot of stuff that is done counter I mean, uh, one of the things that is counter is normally, you know, as I said, Gothic decayed all the way to to becoming this sort of cliche cover of an airport paperback of Fabio shirtless rescuing a girl. And I wanted the girl to rescue herself and then to rescue Fabio. You know, it's like I, I, I really that that is that is really counter to most expectations. But it is is is. 
I'm surrounded by strong women. I, I, everything in my life, wherever I turn, there are strong women. My kids, my wife, my mother, everybody that collaborates in the movies, producers, uh, and I just, and I just wanted to, to have, basically the males in the movie are pretty useless. <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty, pretty ineffective, I would say. You know, and, and I wanted to reverse that. I wanted to reverse, uh, one of the things you were mentioning, the fact that the ghosts are not the scary thing. That's really tough because the easiest way to make a movie like this scary is you stick to the ghosts being malignant. And then they appear and they are instantly scary because you have a baggage. But it's sort of a self-sabotage, but one that I seek and relish. I did it on Devil's Backbone, and I'm doing it again here, which is the most scary thing in these tales is the humans. You know, it's not the ghost. Another thing that goes counter is basically everybody n nice gets punished and everybody bad, quote unquote, uh, you hopefully, if I did my job right, you get to feel for them or understand them. Because again, the easiest thing is hate the bad guys so much that at the end you want them dead, you want them dead, you want them dead, and then you get your wish and you are so happy. But for me, it's the opposite. Is I find it more moving to know them a little better before they they die, you know, before before they they are just the evil the evil guys. I always say some all the great villains in history, their moms calm them, change their clothes, I, they send them to school, tended their 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 when they were sick with a cold. So you know, it, it really I'm more intrigued by that than than the other formula. And finally, another thing that we reverse on the Gothic is the sex. Because normally, sex in Gothic and certainly in horror is negative, is disempowering. And I find in life, sex is fucking great, <laughs> first of all. And it's liberating, and it should be celebrated. And I wanted a moment of sexual uh, empowerment, not for the female, but for the male, actually. The, the girl is, so, is, is comfortable in it, and she, she actually is not the one that learns from it only. She liberates him. And I wanted, those are all things that are done by design counter to, to all of that, including making the monsters, uh, the humans, you know? I, I, I think that another thing that got my attention when I saw the film was that, um, you are navigating in a way with this very exquisite and in a way revisited genre from an audience that is not used to that, in a, in a kind of a genre that you are exploring for the first time, expecting from you something else. Yes. You took that risk. <laughs> but that happens is, in every movie with me. No, but it's fantastic. because One is the movie you want me to do, and the other one is the fucking movie I do. And, and that's uh, great, no, no, no. because I mean, it's, honestly, it's, not every filmmaker do that. And then and, there's our third movie, which is that one that the trailers have. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you are doing exactly what the people is not expecting, which is exactly the courage of, of yourself and, and being brave. And, and you were navigating with this uh, genre and, and dealing with very tough uh, dramatic elements as yeah. the incest, for example. To visit that in a film is always dangerous. And, and there's elements there that could have been extremely, I mean, as a director, directing actors with those kind of situations when two brothers are lovers and then they are caught by the... In yeah. a way, it's very easy to get into the melodrama in a bad way. And I think you, the, the, the tone and the directing 
the, the way you direct the actors, they were really always navigating in, in a very radioactive, dangerous zone. I would like to ask you yeah. about the casting, how you arrived to that, and how you how you were with the casting uh, rehearsals. What what was the yeah. way you 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 went into that precise tone well, of directing? Well, thank you for asking that because I actually one of the reasons for the visuals um, is to allow them to go to those places. If you have a completely realistic movie and then they go into monologues uh, that are, you know, or, or, or they take their characters into real emotional places, but the tone of their acting is not real. Their tone of their acting is a couple of notches above real. And you have to then, if you do a Sidney Lumet <laughs> gothic uh, period mansions, all real, all, you know, you shoot on location, it's out of place. So I tried to do visual melodrama, if you, if, an audio, audio design melodrama, so that the movie has a couple of notches above reality, so the, the actors can do that. Now, gothic melodrama, gothic romance is either you, you fall into it or you don't. Is not is 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 very very is a very extreme form of uh, genre, and I think the actors understood that their emotions needed to be real. The eight to ten page biography is the key, because then I tell them everything. I tell them from their birth to the end of the movie, and I tell them what their zodiac sign is, what food they like, what colors they like, and all of that is explained in their clothes. In the, I help them decorate. We decorate the rooms together. We hide things in the drawers. Uh, we find little cues about their characters. They, we change the clothes. We do everything not as a visual, but as a part of the character construction. And then we do table work, and then we discuss those biographies, and and I I whatever we discover in that process, uh, then we it goes into the screenplay. I, I I rewrite for them, and then on the set we have a commonality. We know exactly where we're going. We are never in disagreement. I I'm not just worried about the camera pushing uh, or being a nice dolly. I'm all concerned about their performance. We have that communication and we can manage to make the emotions real. The tone is not real, but the emotions are. And I think the actors, first of all, uh, I think casting is 50% of 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 a directing job is you you cast the right actor with the right energy and of course when when, uh, when you adapt the script Jessica I had never done a part like this ever and and I knew she could do it and when she chose Lucille when she read the screenplay I I thought it was extremely smart because in gothic I think the real the 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 heroes are like fiber and vegetables they're nice for you but the 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 banquet the dessert is the villain and that's pure sugar and calories and you know it really you, it's a banquet and she chose dessert you know so so now you want to help her make dessert real and you give her instead of making the bad guy bad you give her delicate things you say you really love him and this is how you really love him unfortunately Sometimes you love somebody by suffocating them. And that's the downfall. It's controlling. And everything about her body language, clothing is controlling. She said to me, what, give me one clue to my character that I can use constantly. And I say, she doesn't blink. So she blinks three times in the whole movie. 
Tom Hiddleston, I wanted him to be uh, almost like the, the younger brother, and he is, he is by omission, by omission, he is sort of a coward and, a, and an accomplice, and, and, but he is truly, the, the tragedy of that character is the chasm between who he is and, he, and who he wants to be. You know, and, and again, I wanted to contrast a girl that lives in a super modern place, but can see ghosts, which is a thing of the past. And a guy that lives in a place of the past, but can see the future. And, and Tom embraced these things. Mia, you know, uh, I wanted her to be very sure of herself, but many times in, in creating a female hero, there, a huge mistake is made by, by immediately masculinizing. And, and I thought her center and her strength could be of the period and, 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 and be strong and powerful and serene. You know, she doesn't have to, to just immediately, uh, become super active. Uh, I think that the movie tries to make a point through Lucille that Lucille thinks that pretty things are fragile. And I think I've seen in my life pretty strong stainless steel balls to the wall pretty things that can kick your ass and I wanted her to be one of those and and as I said the other day to someone I said I put the damsel in distress through enough distress that she stops being a damsel and starts kicking ass you know and 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 uh, Charlie Hunnam when when Charlie came I said you're gonna be half investigate half Sherlock Holmes and half damsel in distress you will be the damsel in distress. And to credit, to Charlie's credit, he said, I'm in. You know, I, I want to be the damsel in distress. So you, I don't even, I don't even know what your question was. <laughs> but you answer all. Uh, but, um, how, 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 how much you storyboard this film and, and I mean, the blocking of the scenes. And there are scenes that are really tough, like that, you know, the one that they, in the father, in the bathroom and yes. all that thing. That you do so well. How much you storyboard and or how you work with them in the blocking? If there's a lot of rehearsals before, how you manage the everyday a day in a set with you? They know already you did the rehearsals before start shooting, or in the day you block the scene, or or how much they are storyboard. You know? Well, I start. I start. I always storyboard the entire movie. Yes, but I storyboard and decide lenses uh, very early on, but then. Every day, I arrive one or two hours earlier than anyone with the actors, and we block one last time. When when we already shot a few weeks, I, I edit every day at lunch and at wrap. So Tuesday, I show you all the footage we shot on Monday. It's already cut with music and effects. Wednesday, I show you everything up to Tuesday. So the actors are constantly watching and we're involved in discussing, look, we didn't get this in this scene. Let's get it tomorrow. We can come back. And, and what we do is, is, um, we block one last time and many, many things come up on that day, you know, and, and I have, I treat storyboards as a backup plan. Uh, I say, if anything better comes up, reboarding, I edit on paper a lot on the storyboards and, and for example, the scene where she hits with the, with the uh, frying pan and she picks up the egg that, that originally it was, she slapped Mia in the, in the script. And I said, you know what? An American girl, you slap an American girl, she'll slap you back. And it'll net in a fucking cat fight to end all cat fights because Mia is not going to take it easy. So I said, why don't we do this? 
and then you do a little Blanche Dubois with the <laughs> with the eggs, you know, and 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 we went for that. Now the violence. I will prefer the fight in the floor. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been cool. You probably would. Uh, and then and then, for example, you know, effects. Well, you have we created a prosthetic. Every everything. I I, I approached. Let me say this. I approached the movie saying I want to build the sets and have the ghost be actors in makeup effects on the set. I don't want digital extensions. I want the real deal. And uh, so when you are doing violent scenes, uh, obviously you're not going to improvise. We need, we did a prosthetic cheek with a retractable, uh, thing to guide the knife in and uh, so on and so forth. You know, you have to tube it. So you cannot improvise. So those things you storyboard and then you, you, you know where you're going to cut. And, um, and I think it's, it's important. The, the violence in the movie is very fast and brutal and to the point and out of it. Because, uh, in the 1800s when Gothic romance was at its highest with Anne Radcliffe or Matthew G. Lewis with the monk, uh, you know, they, they were very titillating, uh, pieces of literature uh to the point where uh, lord byron said famously if everything else fails shock them you know which it could have been william castle or roger corman saying that you needed you needed to revive the the erotic and the violent elements that made them sort of titillating in the past so but that violence you storyboard carefully you plan it carefully and, and execute it how much the story, the original story, changed during the? During the it's a lot. So, I mean, there, there was major changes as you were. How many days you shoot? Uh, we shot this in about seventy days. Seventy days. I always shoot everything. I don't do. I don't. I don't allow second unit. I shoot close-ups. I shoot wides. I shoot establishings. I shoot everything because I think it's it's. Is I just mimic traumatized me first of all because we we had three second units and Jim Cameron said to me, look, second unit is is bad news when it's bad and is worse news when it's good, you know. And 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 I and I would agree. You go, damn it, and that's not my shot, you know. And, and so I, I you always have this. I didn't get this fat by being generous with my food, <laughs> you know. I. I want all the donuts and all the rice and the chicken, you know. So it's the same with the visuals. I want to shoot everything. And, and the 70 days, 70 days are very tight. We, we did some stuff that was a little challenging. Like when Mia is thrown off the balcony, it's Mia and she really falls, you know, and, and we really push her backwards and we needed to rehearse that, make it safe and so forth. But 70 days were, were good enough. Yeah. So if you are editing every day, literally, mm-hmm. how after you finish the film, the shooting, how long it takes to you to be ready for the films? I mean, you are almost ready a couple of weeks later. Well, the, how is the, the editing process? Depends. I mean, Devil's Back one, we cut negative 12 weeks after wrap. Done. It was done, and then I, I, I went to, to Prague to start Blade 2. You know, God, I, I remember the Village Boys uh, had one of my favorite reviews. He said, the only thing remotely scary about Blade 2 is that it was done by the same director that did Devil's Battle. <laughs> <laughs> but God forbid. And and uh, so this this actually, we had a year. And I must say, they pried me away from Crimson Peak. I did, uh, I don't know, 25 color correction sessions. I did, we did 12 
music recording sessions. We make the movie entirely three or four times. Uh, I, I, I kept what shifting. was, what was, what was happening? What, what, well, what, it's, 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 it's for me, for me, I really wanted to come as close to the, to the movie the way I saw it and, and as a, as this strange mixture of fable, fairy tale, gothic romance, uh, I wanted to, 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 to make sure that everything was exactly as I wanted it. And honestly, I could, I could keep doing things. I mean, every time I see it, I go, I should have taken that shot out. I should have added that shot in. It's one of those, sometimes very fast. This is the first time I, I'm, I'm so obsessed. We only previewed two times and both times were 20 and 30 minutes longer. The, the pacing was not, not ha I was not happy with it, but I, I always say previews are to check what doesn't work as opposed to check just what works. So, you know, I, I, I and then I locked the movie before Cannes, uh, before May. I said, that's it. I'm done. I went to Cannes and I kept sending emails from Cannes as a juror. <laughs> I kept sending, change this, move this. I reopened it in June. Uh, you know, so it, you know, it's sometimes it's not an exact science. You know, sometimes you keep 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 screwing with it, keep screwing until they take it away and you cry. So it seems that you have with me like the the chronic unsatisfaction yes. bug. Uh, yes. You know, chronic unsatisfaction. Well, uh, I I think that uh, uh, it's a wonderful film, and you know, you have the luxury to spend so much time to really polish and. And, and shape uh, a beautiful jewel, a very unique piece of your cinematography, which I really enjoy. And uh, I couldn't be more more happy and proud to be here tonight with you, Guillermo. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this talk. You can watch video of this entire Q&A on our website at dga.org slash events. On our website, you can watch all of our recent filmmaker Q&As, including another interview with Guillermo del Toro, conducted by Christopher Nolan, the director of The Dark Knight and Inception. If you enjoyed the director's cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. This podcast is brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Music is produced by Dan Wally. Coming up next week, Angelina Jolie-Pitt will talk about directing her third feature film, By the Sea, the story of a couple trying to rekindle their dormant relationship while on a vacation in an idyllic French seaside resort, starring Angelina Jolie-Pitt and Brad Pitt. We hope you hear from us then. <laughs>